When I was in college, a friend and I used to do a humorous sketch for the campus radio station. I think we had about 20 listeners. We would impersonate two old guys who lived in a small Texas town who happened to own a radio station, but weren't present much. The radio had no set hours. We just turned on the station when we felt like it, when we had some news worth sharing. I think I might be sliding into that mode with this podcast, just waiting until I feel I have something worth sharing. Might be so. I'm W.F. Strong. This is Beyond Texas. Welcome back. Or maybe you should say welcome back to me, as I'm the one who's been out of pocket. Truthfully distracted by trying to complete the recording for my audiobook and doing a kind of blitz of book readings and signings around the state, which is good and keeps me off the streets. You will remember that we left off on the story of Dr. Meadow and Munchausen syndrome like this. Here's the last paragraph. Dr. Meadow went on to be an expert witness in many trials, and one of them hurt his reputation so badly that he lost his medical license, at least for a while. And that was based on an exaggerated statistical claim, ironically reminiscent of what Munchausen himself was famous for. And we'll get to Munchausen's history and legacy after I tell you about the case that brought Meadow down. The case that began to bring Meadow down and resulted in the loss of his medical license for a while was that of Sally Clark. She was a lawyer who lost two children to SIDS. You will recall Meadow's law or principle that one sudden death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder, unless proven otherwise. Sally Clark had lost Christopher at 11 weeks of age, and just a couple of years later she lost Harry at eight weeks. According to Meadow, this was highly suspicious. He testified for the prosecution and said, quote, the chances of two SIDS deaths happening in the same family are 73 million to one. In addition, he illustrated this one in 73 million incidents by saying it was only likely to occur once every hundred years in all of England, Scotland, and Wales. And he further illustrated the very unlikely odds by claiming that they were the same as successfully backing to win an 80-to-1 outsider in the Grand National for four successive years. The jury returned a verdict of guilty. The Royal Statistical Society was astounded by Dr. Meadows' poor grasp of statistical logic. They came to the aid of Sally Clark. They said, first of all, that Dr. Meadow was calculating odds based entirely on fallacious and illogical premises. They said that he was reasoning effect to cause, assuming murder, instead of comparing the event to natural causes and the null hypothesis, which is more like a 200 to 1 odds once you do the calculations properly. Hardly astronomical. Bad things do happen in the world. The president of the society wrote to the Lord Chancellor, stating that there was no statistical basis for Meadows' figure. Once genetic and environmental factors were taken into consideration, the odds of a second Sid's death were much closer to 200 to 1. 
Sally Clark appealed, and Munchausen's faulty stats were at the center of the trial. Lord Howe, who was the defense attorney, described Munchausen syndrome by proxy this way. It is one of the most pernicious and ill-founded theories to have gained currency in child care and social services in the past 10 to 15 years. It is a theory without science. There is no body of peer-reviewed research to underpin Munchausen syndrome by proxy. It rests instead on the assertions of the inventor. When challenged to produce his research papers to justify his original findings, the inventor of MBP stated, well, I'm sorry, but those have been destroyed. Well, the appeal of Sally Clark was denied because the presiding judge said that the guilt verdict did not hinge on Dr. Meadows' testimony and questionable statistics. Sally Clark and her lawyers disagreed vehemently. Dr. Meadows' status and certainty were devastating to her case, they said. She appealed again when new evidence came to light, showing that her second baby died most likely due to a bacterial infection. She won her appeal and was released from prison. Dr. Meadow went on to testify in several other high-profile trials, but because of the Sally Clark case, his credibility began to crumble. He lost his medical license in 2005 for professional misconduct tied to his overstatement of facts and misinterpretation of statistics. He was reinstated a year later upon appeal. It is interesting, indeed ironic, that he got in trouble for doing what the namesake of his syndrome did. He exaggerated in the extreme, told tall tales. Many medical syndromes get their names from doctors who discovered them or for the famous patient associated with it. The Heimlich Maneuver, named for Dr. Henry Heimlich, who discovered and promoted the technique, is a case in point. Lou Gehrig's disease was named for the famous first baseman for the New York Yankees in the 20s and 30s. Ricketts was named for the pathologist who discovered it, Howard Taylor Ricketts. Munchausen is a little different. He was not a medical man, nor a scientist, nor a patient. He was a real baron who was an extraordinary raconteur, a storyteller extraordinaire. People enthusiastically sought an invitation to his dinner parties because he was a fine after-dinner speaker who told fascinating tales about travel and war, always fantastic, unbelievable tales. So Meadow named his syndrome after Munchausen, the kind of person who tells big stories, even lies, to get attention. This conclusion is unfair to the original Munchausen, who only told tall tales as a kind of satire of soldiers and adventurers who always seemed to exaggerate their exploits. Aeronymus Karl Friedrich von Munchausen was born on the 11th of May, 1720, in Germany. Munchausen was a soldier and a cavalry captain as well as an aristocrat. He fought in several wars with distinction. When he retired, he liked to throw nice dinner parties, and he would provide the after-dinner entertainment himself by telling his incredible stories. These stories were not unlike the tall tales of America, like we find in Paul Bunyan, who was so big that if he rolled over in his sleep, he could cause an earthquake. Bacus Bill is part of the genre. 
He was a cowboy who could lasso tornadoes. Munchausen told these kinds of stories. I'll give you an example. He often told them in the first person. This is the sort of thing he would say. I was not always successful. I had the misfortune to be overpowered by numbers to be made prisoner of war. And what is worse but always usual among the Turks, I was sold into slavery. In that state of humiliation, my daily task was not very hard and laborious, but rather singular and irksome. It was to drive the sultan's bees every morning to their pasture grounds to attend them all day long, and against night to drive them back to their hives. One evening I missed a bee, and soon discovered that two bears had fallen upon her to tear her to pieces for the honey she carried. I had nothing like an offensive weapon in my hands but the silver hatchet, which is the badge of the sultan's gardeners and farmers. I threw it at the robbers, with an intention to frighten them away and to set the poor bee at liberty, but by an unlucky turn of my arm it flew upwards and continued rising until it reached the moon. How should I recover it? How to fetch it down again? I remembered that the turkey beans grow very quick, and they run up to an astonishing height. I planted one immediately. It grew and actually fastened itself to one of the moon's horns. I had no more to do now but to climb up by it into the moon, where I safely arrived, and I had a troublesome piece of business before I could find my silver hatchet, in a place where everything has the brightness of silver. At last, however, I found it in a heap of chaff and chopped straw. I was now for returning, but alas, the heat of the sun had dried up my bean. It was totally useless for my descent, so I fell to work and twisted me a rope of that chopped straw as long and as well as I could make it. This I fastened to one of the moon's horns, and I slid down to the end of it. Here I held myself fast with the left hand, and with the hatchet in my right, I cut the long, now useless end of the upper part which, when tied to the lower end, brought me a good deal lower. This repeated splicing and tying of the rope did not improve its quality or bring me down to the sultan's farm. I was four or five miles from the earth at least when it broke. I fell to the ground with such amazing violence that I found myself stunned and in a hole nine fathoms deep, made by the weight of my body falling from so great a height I recovered, but knew not how to get out again. However, I dug slopes or steps with my fingernails and easily accomplished it. So that's one such story, the trip to the moon, for which he was particularly famous, the fantastic tale of astronomical travel by Beansprout. And here's another, and this one deals with him owning David's slingshot, the famous slingshot with which David killed Goliath. He happens to mention it in a story, and then he stops to explain how he happened to have that slingshot. You wish I would inform you how I became possessed of such a treasure as the sling of David just mentioned. Here the facts must be held sacred. I am a descendant of the wife of Uriah, whom we all know David was intimate with. She had several children by his majesty, and she and David quarreled once upon a matter of the first consequence, the spot where Noah's ark was built and where it rested after the flood. 
A separation consequently ensued. She had often heard him speak of this sling as his most valuable treasure, so she stole it the night they parted. It was missed before she got out of his dominions, and she was pursued by no less than six of the king's bodyguards. However, by using it herself, she hit the first of them, for one was more active in the pursuit than the rest, where David had hit Goliath and killed him on the spot. His companions were so alarmed at his fall that they retired from her pursuit and left Uriah's wife to pursue her journey. She took with her, I should have informed you before, her favorite son by this connection, to whom she bequeathed the sling, and thus it has, without interruption, descended from father to son till it came into my possession. One of its possessors, my great-great-great-grandfather, who lived about 250 years ago, was upon a visit to England and became intimate with a poet who was a great deer-stealer. I think his name was Shakespeare. He frequently borrowed this sling and used it. He frequently borrowed this sling and with it killed so much of Sir Thomas Lucy's deer that he narrowly escaped the fate of my two friends who were executed at Gibraltar. Poor Shakespeare was imprisoned and my ancestor obtained his freedom in a very singular manner. Queen Elizabeth was then on the throne, but she was grown so feeble that every trifling matter was a trouble to her, dressing, undressing, eating, drinking, and some other offices which shall be nameless, made life a burden to her. All these things he enabled her to do by restoring her health, and the king was so happy that he offered him any reward— and what was the only reward that the king could prevail upon him to accept for such eminent services? Setting Shakespeare at liberty. Such was his affection for that famous writer that he would have shortened his own days to add to the number of his friends. So there you get the flavor of the tall tales that he liked to tell. The real Baron Munchausen never published his stories. We likely wouldn't know of them at all if not for Rudolf Erich Rasp, also a German, who likely heard the good Baron Munchausen wax eloquent over dinner and then published his stories under the not-so-subtle pseudonym Baron Munchausen. Rasp added to the stories other fantastic folklore tales he had heard or come across. The collection was a big hit, and a superb bestseller in many languages in that time. During his lifetime, Rudolf Rasp never took credit for writing the book because he feared the real Baron Munchausen would sue him. And indeed, the original Baron Munchausen was not pleased. His greatest complaint is that it appeared to make him the very creature he was satirizing in his stories. So we have in some a grand tale of ironies, a storyteller who gained unintended international and lasting fame for his stories, though he was credited not for satirical brilliance, but for being the outrageous claimant of the truth of the tall tales. Rasp was known primarily as a kind of con man before he stumbled upon Munchausen's stories and then pulled off the long con of plagiarizing others' works, using that name as a pseudonym and reaping a fortune in so doing. Then, centuries later, Dr. Meadow names his newly defined syndrome after Munchausen, in two forms, Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but then loses his medical license for sliding into excessive exaggeration, which is itself an attribute of the syndrome. Irony is working overtime here. 
But Munchausen syndrome by proxy is still a respected diagnosis providing that other factors are corroborated in the assessment. Statistical anomalies alone will not serve as proof. Here's how WebMD describes it. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a relatively rare behavioral disorder. It affects a primary caretaker, often the mother. The person with MSP gains attention by seeking medical help for exaggerated or made-up symptoms of a child in their care. As health care providers strive to identify what's causing the child's symptoms, the deliberate actions of the parent or caretaker can often make the symptoms worse. The person with MSP does not seem to be motivated by a desire for any type of material gain. While healthcare providers are often unable to identify the specific cause of the child's illness, they may not suspect the parent or caretaker of doing anything to harm the child. In fact, the caregiver often appears to be very loving and caring and extremely distraught over their child's illness. People with MSP may create or exaggerate a child's symptoms in several ways. They may simply lie about symptoms, alter tests such as contaminating a urine sample, falsify medical records, or they may actually induce symptoms through various means such as poisoning, suffocating, starving, and causing infection. There you have a good, tight history of Munchausen syndrome. For Beyond Texas, I'm W.F. Strong. Thanks for joining me today.